calling all lovers of mystery and fans of a good story. If you haven't already heard me talk about June's journey, you're in for a treat. It's time to don your detective hat in this free hidden object mobile game that delves into the captivating journey of June Parker, a self-proclaimed detective on a quest to unravel the mystery surrounding her sister's untimely death. In June's journey, you get to play as June, deciphering clues and unveiling secret plots within thousands of beautifully illustrated scenes. And did I mention it's set in the glitzy 1920s? New chapters are added weekly, so you will never run out of new thrills to uncover, and you can also personalize and decorate your very own Orchid Island where the story takes place. How sharp are your detective skills? Find out when you download June's Journey on your Android or iOS device, or play online via Facebook games. Your detective journey awaits. Greetings, adventurers. Today we're excited to introduce you to a new story, Dark Dice, a horror podcast that blurs the line between actual play and audio drama, where the story is determined by the role of the dice. Six adventurers embark on a journey into the ruinous domain of the Nameless God. They will never be the same again. One of the players is not what they seem after a doppelganger, a creature that can assume the form and voice of whatever it kills, infiltrates the team. As the players are picked off and replaced one at a time, can they figure out who the monster is before it's too late? Can you? Here's a quick example of what our show sounds like. The, uh, shambler with the jar of liquid inside of him. Soren Arkwright let loose an arrow that cracked the glass, passing through the spine of the creature. The shambler still managed to maintain its forward momentum, but stumbled as it eagerly tried to bite and swipe at Soren, landing near his feet. As Jeff Goldblum has now joined our cast, Dark Dice is available however you listen to podcasts. We're back again with another episode of Stories to Keep You Up at Night. I'm your host, Marco Palmieri, and with me once again is my co-host, Nicole Lotto. How are you today, Nicole? I'm doing well. It's a beautiful day outside. I have coffee. You know, happy as a baby, one might say. Mm, Yeah, funny thing. Funny you should mention babies. Maybe not so funny. But um, (laughs) the interesting thing, I think, about child rearing is portrayed in science fiction. And, And out of curiosity... Are there any, you know, science fiction stories you've experienced that cover the subject that stand out for you? Ah, it's fascinating. When you say that, I think mostly when I think of child rearing and sci-fi, I think of those like human forms floating in cylindrical chambers. Like in the Star Wars prequel movies with the clones and, you know, on Kamino. Yeah, exactly. Or But like the only um, familiar structure that's sticking out to me for sci-fi is as Uncle Owen and Luke. Totally, totally. I can see that. Yeah. I mean, it's not a it's definitely not a universal phenomenon. I mean, there's still a lot of science fiction that depicts what we would consider traditional families or or extended families. You know, it takes a village to raise a child, that sort of thing. But it's it's interesting how often the way child rearing is depicted in science fiction involves the dissolution of the traditional nuclear family. You know, mm-hmm. it, there's there's a strong sense that family units have have become obsolete, which is a great way to lead into our next story because it tackles this issue head on. And it's a story that's so big, we have to present it in two parts. It takes us into a future when society has somehow broken the bonds between parents and children. Children are fostered in creches at the fringes of interplanetary communities, and their caregivers are somehow looked upon with scorn. It's a slow burn, but we think you'll find it well worth your time. 
Please enjoy part one of Intervention, written by Kelly Robson and voiced by Robin Miles. When I was 57, I did the unthinkable. I became a creche manager. On Luna, creche work kills your social capital, but I didn't care. Not at first. My longtime love had been crushed to death in a bot malfunction in Luna's main mulching plant. I was just trying to find a reason to keep breathing. I found a crusty centenarian who'd outlived most of her cohort and asked for her advice. She said there was no better medicine for grief than children, so I found a creche tucked away behind a water printing plant and signed on as a cuddler. That's where I caught the baby bug. When my friends found out, the norming started right away. You're getting a little tubby there, Jules, Ivan would say, unzipping my jacket and reaching inside to pat my stomach. Got a little parasite incubating? I expected this kind of attitude from Ivan, ringleader, team captain, alpha of alphas. From him, I could laugh it off. But then my closest friends started in. Beryl's pretty face soured in disgust every time she saw me. I can smell the freeloader on you, she'd say, pretending to see body fluids on my perfectly clean clothing. Have the decency to shower and change after your shift. Even that wasn't so bad. But then Robin began avoiding me and ignoring my pings. We'd been each other's first lovers, best friends since forever. And suddenly I didn't exist. That's how extreme the prejudice is on Luna. Finally, on my birthday, they threw me a surprise party. Everyone wore diapers and crawled around in a violent mockery of childhood. When I complained, they accused me of being broody. I wish I could say I ignored their razzing, but my friends were my whole world. I dropped crash work. My secret plan was to leave Luna, find a hab where working with kids wasn't social death. But I kept putting it off. Then I blinked, and ten years had passed. Enough delay. I jumped trans to Eris Station, engaged a recruiter, and was settling into my new life on Ricochet within a month. I never answered my friend's pings. As far as Ivan, Beryl, Robin, and the rest knew, I fell off the face of the moon. And that's the way I wanted it. Ricochet is one of the asteroid-based habs that travel the inner system using gravity assist to boost speed in tiny increments. As a wandering hab... We have no fixed astronomical events or planetary seasonality to mark the passage of time, so boosts are a big deal for us. The equivalent of New Year's on Earth or the Sol Belt Flare Cycle. On our most recent encounter with Mars, my third and final crash, the Jewel Box, were 12 years old. We hadn't had a boost since the kids were six, so my team and I worked hard to make it special. Throwing parties, making presents, planning excursions. 
We even suited up and took the kids to the outside of our hab, exploring asteroid irises, vast pockmarked surface, roofed by nothing less than the universe itself in all its spangled glory. We played around out there until Mars climbed over the horizon and showed the jewel box its great face for the first time. So huge and close, it seemed we could reach up into its milky skim of atmosphere. When the boost itself finally happened, we were all exhausted. All the kids and cuddlers lounged in the rumpus room, clipped into our safety harnesses, nestled on mats and cushions or tucked into the wall netting, yawning, droopy-eyed, even dozing. But when the hab began to shift underneath us, we all sprang alert. Tresor scooted to my side and ducked his head under my elbow. You doing okay, buddy? I asked him in a low voice. He nodded. I kissed the top of his head and checked his harness. I wasn't the only adult with a little primate soaking up my body heat. Diamant used Blanche like a climbing frame, standing on her thighs, gripping her hands and leaning back into the increasing force of the boost. Opal had coaxed her favorite cuddler, Michelty, up into the ceiling netting. They both dangled by their knees, the better to feel the acceleration. Little Rubis was holding tight to Enku's and Megat's hands, while on the other side of the room, Safir and Emerald clowned around competing for Long Mong's attention. I was supposed to be on damage control, but I passed the safety workflow over to Bruce. When we hit maximum acceleration, Trey was clinging to me with all his strength. The kids' biomes were stacked in the corner of my eye. All their hormone graphs showed stress indicators. Trey's levels were higher than the rest, but that wasn't strange. When your hab is somersaulting behind a planet, bleeding off its orbital energy, your whole world turns into a carnival ride. Some people like it better than others. I tightened my arms around Trey's ribs, holding tight as the room turned sideways. Everything's fine, I murmured in his ear. Ricochet was designed for this kind of maneuver. Our safety harnesses held us tight to the wall netting. Below, Safir and Emerald climbed up the floor, laughing and hooting. Long Mung tossed pillows at them. Trey gripped my thumb, yanking as if it were a joystick with the power to tame the room spin. Then he shot me a live feed, showing Ricochet's chief astronautics officer, a dark-skinned silver-haired woman with protective bubbles fastened over her eyes. Who's that? I asked, pretending I didn't know. Vijaya Lakshmi, Trey answered. If anything goes wrong, she'll fix it. Have you met her? I knew very well he had, but asking questions is an excellent calming technique. Yeah, lots of times. He flashed a pointer at the astronaut's mirrored eye coverings. Is she sick? Might be cataracts. That's a normal age-related condition. What's worrying you? Nothing, he said. Why don't you ask Long Mung about it? Long Mung was the jewel box's physician. Ricochet raised with a facial deformity that thrust her mandible severely forward. As an adult, once bone ossification had completed, she had rejected the cosmetic surgery that could have normalized her jaw. 
Not all interventions are worthwhile, she'd told me once. I wouldn't feel like myself with a new face. As a pediatric specialist, Long Meng was responsible for the health and development of 20 crushes, but we were her favorite. She decided to celebrate the boost with us. At that moment, she was dangling from the floor with Saphir and Emerald, tickling their tummies and howling with laughter. I tried to mitigate Trey's distress with good old-fashioned cuddle and chat. I showed him feeds from the biodiversity preserve, where the netted megafauna floated in midair, riding out the boost in safety, legs dangling. One big cat groomed itself as it floated, licking one huge paw and wiping down its whiskers with an air of unconcern. Once the boost was complete and we were back to our normal gravity regime, Trey's indicators quickly normalized. The kids ran up to the garden to check out the damage. I followed slowly, leaning on my cane. One of the bots had malfunctioned and lost stability, destroying several rows of terraced seating in the open-air auditorium just next to our patch. The kids all thought that was pretty funny. Trey seemed perfectly fine. But I couldn't shake the feeling that I'd failed him somehow. The jewel box didn't visit Mars. Martian habs are popular, their excursion contracts highly priced. The kids put in a few bids, but didn't have the credits to win. Next boost, I told them. Venus in four years, then Earth. I didn't mention Luna. I'd done my best to forget it even existed. Easy to do. Ricochet has almost no social or trade ties with Earth's moon. Our main economic sector is human reproduction and development. Artificial wombs, zygote husbandry, natal decanting, every bit of art and science that turns a mass of undifferentiated cells into a healthy young adult. Luna's crash system collapsed completely not long after I left. Serves them right. I'm a centenarian, facing my last decade or two. I may look serene and wise, but I've never gotten over being the butt of my old friend's jokes. Maybe I've always been immature. It would explain a lot. Four years passed with the usual small dramas. The jewel box grew in body and mind, stretching into young adults of 16. All six, Diamant, Emerald, Tresor, Opal, Saphir, and Rubies, hit their benchmarks erratically and inconsistently, which made me proud. Kids are supposed to be odd little individuals. We're not raising robots, after all. As Ricochet approached, the Venusian Habs began peppering us with proposals. Recreation opportunities, educational seminars, sightseeing trips, arts festivals, sporting tournaments, all unreasonable trade terms. Venus wanted us to visit, fall in love, stay. They'd been losing population to Mars for years. The brain drain was getting critical. The jewel box decided to bid on a three-day excursion. Sightseeing with a focus on natural geology, including active volcanism. For the first time in their lives, they'd experience real, unaugmented planetary gravity, 
instead of ricochets 1.0 cobbled together by centripetal force and a Steffoff field. While the kids were lounging around the rumpus room, arguing over how many credits to sink into the bid, Long Meng pinged me. You and I should send a proposal to the Venusian crushes, she whispered. A master class or something, something so tasty they can't resist. Why? Are you trying to pad your billable hours? She gave me a toothy grin. I want a vacation. Wouldn't it be fun to get Venus to fund it? Long Mung and I had collaborated before, when our numbers had come up for board positions on the Kresh Governance Authority. Nine miserable months co-authoring policy memos, revising the Kresh Management Best Practices Guide, and presenting at skills and development seminars. All on top of our regular responsibilities. Against the odds, our friendship survived the bureaucracy. We spent a few hours cooking up a seminar to tempt the on-planet crush specialists and fired it off to a bunch of Venusian booking agents. We called it Attachment and Self-Regulation in Theory and Practice, Approaches to Promoting Emotional Independence in the Crush-Raised Child. Sound dry? Not a bit. The Venusians gobbled it up. I shot the finalized syllabus to our chosen booking agent, then escorted the jewel box to their open-air climbing lab. I turned them over to their instructor and settled onto my usual bench under a tall oak. Diamant took the lead position up the cliff as usual. By the time they'd completed the first pitch, all three seminars were filled. The agent is asking for more sessions, I whispered to Long Meng. What do you think? No way! Long Meng's voice rang out, startling me. As I pinged her location, her lanky form appeared in the distant aspen grove. This is a vacation, she shouted. If I wanted to pack my billable hours, I'd volunteer for another board position. I shuddered. Agreed. She jogged over and climbed onto the bench beside me, sitting on the backrest with her feet on the seat. Plus, you haven't been off this rock in twenty years, she added, plucking a leaf from the overhead bough. I said okay, Long Mung. We watched the kids as they moved with confidence and ease over the gleaming pyrite-inflected cliff face. Big, bulky Diamond didn't look like a climber, but was obsessed with the sport. The other five had gradually been infected by their crushmate's passion. Long Mung and I waved to the kids as they settled in for a rest mid-route. Then she turned to me. What do you want to see on planet? Have you made a wish list yet? I've been to Venus. It's not that special. She laughed, a great good-natured wide-mouthed guffaw. Nothing can compare to Luna, can it, Jules? Don't say that word. Luna? Okay. What's better than Venus, Earth? Earth doesn't smell right. The Sol Belt? Never been there. What then? This is nice. I waved at the groves of trees surrounding the cliff. Overhead, the plasma core that formed the backbone of our hab was just shifting its visible spectrum into twilight. Mellow light filtered through the leaves. Teenage laughter echoed off the cliff, and in the distance, 
the steady droning wail of a fussy newborn. I pulled up the surrounding camera feeds and located the newborn. A tired-looking cuddler carried the baby in an overshoulder sling, patting its bottom rhythmically as they strolled down a sunflower-lined path. I pinged the baby's biome. Three weeks old, chronic gas, and reflux unresponsive to every intervention strategy. Nothing to do but wait for the child to grow out of it. The kids summited, waved to us, then began rappelling back down. Long Mung and I met them at the base. Um, how's your finger? Long Mung asked. Good. Emerald bounced off the last ledge and slipped to the ground, wave of pink hair flapping. Better than good. Let's see, then. Emerald unclipped and offered the doctor their hand. They were a kid with only two modes, all out or flatline. A few months back, they'd injured themselves, cranking on a crimp, completely bowstringing the flexor tendon. Long Mong launched into an explanation of annular pulley repair strategies and recovery times. I tried to listen, but I was tired. My hips ached, my back ached, my limbs rotated on joints gritty with age. In truth, I didn't want to go to Venus. The kids had won their bid, and with them off hab, staying home would have been a good rest. But Long Mung's friendship was important, and making her happy was worth a little effort. On a remote island in Frigid Lake Superior, a fabricated creature birthed from the mind of a disturbed genius stalks the very people who created it. Ancestor by number one New York Times bestselling author Scott Sigler is a classic tale of science gone horribly wrong. Available wherever you get your podcasts. Long Mung and I accompanied the jewel box down Venus's umbilical through the high sulfuric acid clouds to the elevator's base, deep in the planet's mantle. When we entered the busy central transit hub, with its domed ceiling and slick, speedy slideways, the kids began making faces. This place stinks, said Diamant. Yeah, smells like piss, said Rubies. Trey looked worried. Do they have diseases here or something? Opal slapped her hand over her mouth. I'm going to be sick. Is it the smell or the gravity? A quick glance at Opal's biome showed she was perfectly fine. All six kids were. Time for a classic crush manager-style social intervention. If you can't be polite around the locals, I whispered, knocking my cane on the ground for emphasis, I'll shoot you right back up the elevator. If you send us home, do we get our credits back? Emerald asked, yawning. No, you'd be penalized for non-completion of contract. I posted a leaderboard for good behavior. Then I told them Venusians were especially gossipy. And if word got out, they'd badmouth the planet. They'd get nothing but dirty looks for the whole trip. A bald lie. Venus is no more gossipy than most haps, but it nurses a significant anti-crash prejudice, not as extreme as Luna, but still. Ricochet kids were used to being loved by everyone. On Venus, they would get attitude just for existing. 
I wanted to offer a convenient explanation for the chilly reception from the locals. The group of us rode the slideway to Vanavara Portway, where Enku, Megat, and Bruce were waiting. Under the towering archway, I hugged and kissed the kids, told them to have lots of fun, and waved at their retreating backs. Then Long Mung and I were on our own. She took my arm and steered us into Vanavara's passeggiata, a social stroll that wound through the hab like a pedestrian river. We drifted with the flow, joining the people-watching crowd, seeing and being seen. The hab had spectacular sculpture gardens and fountains, and Venus's point-nine-odd gravity was a relief on my knees and hips. But the kids weren't wrong about the stench. Vanavra smelled like oily vinaigrette over half-rotted lettuce leaves, with an animal undercurrent reminiscent of hormonal teenagers on a cleanliness strike. As we walked, the stench surged and faded, then resurfaced again. We ducked into a kiosk where a lone chef roasted kebabs over an open flame. We sat at the counter drinking sparkling wine and watching her prepare meal packages for bot delivery. What's wrong with the air scrubbers here? Long Mung asked the chef. Unstable population, she answered. We don't have enough civil engineers to handle the optimization workload. If you know any nuts and bolts types, tell them to come to Vanavra. The bank will kiss them all over. She served us grilled protein on discs of crispy starch topped with charred vegetables and heaped with garlicky sauce, followed by finger-sized blossoms with tender fleshy petals over a crisp honeycomb core. When we rejoined the throng, we shot the chef a pair of big, bright, public valentines on slow decay, visible to everyone passing by. The chef ran after us with two tulip-shaped bulbs of amaro. Enjoy your stay, she said, handing us the bulbs. We're developing a terrific fresh food culture here. You'll love it. In response to the population downswing, Venus's Habs had started accepting all kinds of marginal business proposals. Artists, innovators, experimenters. Lose a ventilation engineer, gain a chef. Lose a surgeon, gain a puppeteer. With the chefs and puppeteers come all the people who want to live in a hab with chefs and puppeteers, and who are willing to put up with a little stench to get it. Eventually, the hab's fortunes turn around. Population starts flowing back, attracted by the burgeoning quality of life. Engineers and surgeons return, and the chefs and puppeteers move on to the next proposal-friendly hab. Basic human dynamics. Long Mung sucked the last drop of Amaro from her bulb and then tossed it to a disposal bot. First night of vacation, she gave me a wicked grin. Wanna get drunk? When I rolled out of my sleep stack in the morning, I was puffy and stiff. Oh, my hair stood in untamable clumps. The pouches under my eyes shone an alarming purple, and my wrinkle inventory had doubled. My tongue tasted like garlic sauce. But as long as nobody else could smell it, I wasn't too concerned. As for the rest, I'd earned every age marker. When Long Mong finally cracked her stack, she was pressed and perky, 
wrapped in a crisp fuchsia robe. A filmy teal scarf drifted under her thrusting jawline. Let's teach these Venusians how to raise kids, she said. In response to demand, the booking agency had upgraded us to a larger auditorium. The moment we hit the stage, I forgot all my aches and pains. Dr. Footlights, they call it. Performing in front of 2,000 strangers produces a lot of adrenaline. We were a good pair. Long Mong, dynamic and engaging, lunging around the stage like a born performer. Me? I was her foil. A grave, wise Ulster with 50 years of crash work under my belt. Much of our seminar was inspirational. Crash work is relentless, no matter where you practice it. And on Venus, it brings negative social status. A little cheerleading goes a long way. We slotted our specialty content in throughout the program, introducing the concepts in the introductory material, building audience confidence by reinforcing what they already knew, then hit them between the eyes with the latest developments in Ricochet's proprietary cognitive theory and emotional development modeling. We blew their minds, then backed away from the hard stuff and returned to cheerleading. What's the worst part of crash work, Jules? Long Mung asked as our program concluded, her scarf waving in the citrus-scented breeze from the ventilation. There are no bad parts, I said dryly. Each and every day is unmitigated joy. The audience laughed harder than the joke deserved. I waited for the noise to die down and mined the silence for a few lingering moments before continuing. Our children venture out of the crash as young adults, ready to form new emotional ties wherever they go. The future is in their hands, an unending medium for them to shape with their ambition and passion. Our crash work lifts them up and holds them high all their lives. That's the best part. I held my cane to my heart with both hands. The worst part is, I said, if we do our jobs right, those kids leave the crash and never think about us again. We left them with a tear in every eye. The audience ran back to their crashes, knowing they were doing the most important work in the universe and open to the possibility of doing it even better. After our second seminar, on a recommendation from the kebab chef, we blew our credits in a restaurant high up in Venavra's atrium. Live food raised, prepared, and served by hand. Nothing extruded or bulbed, and no bots except for the occasional hygiene sweeper. Long Mang cut into a lobster carapace with a pair of hand shears. Have you ever noticed how intently people listen to you? Well, most of the time, the kids just pretend to listen. Not kids. Adults. She served me a morsel of claw meat perfectly molded by the creature's shell. I dredged it in green sauce and popped it in my mouth. Sweet peppers buzzed my sinuses. You're a great leader, Jules. At my age, I should be. I've had lots of practice telling people what to do. Exactly, she said through a mouthful of lobster. 
So what are you going to do when the jewel box leaves the crash? I lifted my flute of pale green wine and leaned back, gazing through the window at my elbow into the depths of the atrium. I'd been expecting this question for a few years, but didn't expect it from Long Mung. How could someone so young understand the sorrows of the old? If you don't want to talk about it, I'll shut up, she added quickly. But I have some ideas. Do you want to hear them? On the atrium floor far below, groups of pedestrians were just smudges. No individuals distinguishable at all. I turned back to the table, but kept my eyes on my food. Okay, go ahead. A HAB consortium is soliciting proposals to rebuild their failed crash system. She said, voice eager. I want to recruit a team. You'd be project advisor, top position, big picture stuff. I'll be project lead and do all the grunt work. Let me guess, I said. It's Luna. Long Meng nodded. I kept a close eye on my blood pressure indicators. Deep breaths and a sip of water kept the numbers out of the red zone. I suppose you'd want me to liaise with Luna's civic apparatus, too. I kept my voice flat. That would be ideal. She slapped the table with both palms and grinned. With a native Lunite at the helm, we'd win for sure. Long Mong was so busy bubbling with ideas and ambition as she told me her plans. She didn't notice my fierce scowl. She probably didn't even taste her luxurious meal. As for me, I enjoyed every bite, right down to the last crumb of my flaky cardamom chocolate dessert. Then I pushed back my chair and grabbed my cane. There's only one problem, Long Mung, I said. Luna doesn't deserve crushes. Deserve doesn't really... I cut her off. Luna doesn't deserve a population. She looked confused. But it has a population, so Luna deserves to die. I snapped. I stumped away, leaving her at the table, her jaw hanging in shock. Sorry to end part one just as the tension was starting to build, but we'll be back with part two of Intervention in our next episode. Before we go, Nicole, any initial thoughts? Well, so far I am loving how immersed in this world and in this character I feel. There's such attention to detail and this unhurried, in the best way, exploration of, of this person and this world. Yeah, I love the character of Jules. As far as I'm concerned, we don't see enough older female protagonists in popular fiction, and I'm absolutely delighted to experience this story through the eyes of one. We don't, and we should. Uh, Robin Miles does a fantastic job. I felt very attached to Jules by the end of part one, and that's in no small part due to her excellent work. Agreed, and I think that's a good place to leave it. If you're enjoying our show, consider leaving us a five-star review wherever you're listening to us right now. And don't forget to come back next time for part two of Intervention. Until then, pleasant nightmares. You're listening to Stories to Keep You Up at Night. Created and produced by Realm, your portal to another world. Listen away. 
Hey there, this is Justin Bartha. I made a funny new podcast, King of the Egg Cream. It has the greatest cast in the history of podcasts with actors like Louis Black. I'm torn by my feelings for two women. Bobby Cannavale. You can eat it, or if someone hits you, you can put it on your cut. Melanie Linsky. I wonder what these marvelous things are that look just like boiled chicken feet. Jason Ritter. I can break things and pick locks and kill people. Michael Stuhlbarg. The whole point is to inspire people that they should make themselves better. Ari Grainer. No, don't whet its appetite. What are you, an idiot? Me, Justin Martha. That's not just any egg cream, that's a Lemke's special. And all narrated by the hilarious Richard Kind. This is the story of Harry Dalowitz. And how he rose from nothing to become New York's King of the Egg Cream. So if you like funny true stories, come listen to King of the Egg Cream, available wherever you get your podcasts. Stories to Keep You Up at Night, Episode 67, features Intervention by Kelly Robson. It is produced by Marco Palmieri and Mary Asadolahi. Associate produced by Alexis Latshaw and executive produced by Molly Barton, Julian Yap, and Marcy Wiseman. Hosted by Marco Palmieri and Nicole Otto. Performed by Robin Miles. Audio produced by Spoken Realms. Additional editing by Angela Yee. Original theme by Hashem Asadolahi, featuring drummer Andrew Niven and mixed by Max Kuttner. Cover art by Kendall Thomas. Find more shows like Stories to Keep You Up at Night by following Realm on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or at realm.fm.